0: Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly Writers Club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern Time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the Classes tab.
1: I just want to inject something right here, which is that we're recording this episode days before the 2020 presidential
0: election. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And this is Writing Class Radio. You'll hear true personal stories and learn a little bit about how to write your own stories. Together, we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit. There's no place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. Today's show is one in a mini-series called Home. Writing Class Radio helped produce a documentary to help end homelessness for Chapman Partnership Homeless Center in South Florida. We put out a public call for submissions for stories about home. The call brought so many different takes on home. Thank you to all the people who submitted stories. In our series, you'll hear a story about a woman who finally feels at home in her skin, a woman being torn between two homes, and a man who finds home through love with a woman while he's dealing with addiction. Today's story is by Tiffany Drayton, who takes an idea that I think most Americans hold about our country and turns it on its head. Tiffany wrote a story that was published in the New York Times on January 12, 2020, and landed her a $250,000 book deal. We're bringing you that story, plus our conversation with Tiffany, about her experience as a Black person in America. Tiffany came to America from Trinidad at four years old. She talks about her privilege as a dual citizen and her responsibility as a writer to call herself out for that privilege. Here's Tiffany reading her story, I'm a black American, I had to get out.
2: I watched the video of George Floyd taking his last breaths under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer while scrolling through Facebook. The sound of crashing waves and my children's giggles created the soundtrack for the devastating images. My mother came out onto our sunny front patio, a cup of coffee in one hand and a phone in the other. She also had news to share. They turned the unit I worked on into a COVID unit, she blurted out. Everyone at her old hospital, she said, was complaining there wasn't enough personal protective equipment. If my mother hadn't moved from New Jersey to join me here just months before the coronavirus pandemic took hold in the United States, she would have been working as a nurse on the front lines of a war with the disease that has disproportionately claimed the lives of people of color and healthcare workers like her. Our decision to leave the United States has spared us of so much suffering and danger. Mom, I said, we are refugees. In 2013, when George Zimmerman was found not guilty of second-degree murder in the shooting death of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, a black child gunned down in his own neighborhood, branded a thug in a hoodie, I knew I had to leave America. The racism that had become all too familiar to me as a black woman was too much to bear. I packed my things, made sure to secure a few online writing gigs, and moved in with my sister in Maraval on the island of Trinidad. I settled easily. Still, as the Black Lives Matter movement gained momentum over the next few years, I prayed from afar that America would finally allow Black people the fair treatment they'd long fought for. Instead, white Americans fired back with All Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, and critics branded the group as anti-police, with some going so far as to accuse social justice advocates of inciting a race war. I concluded America would never stop battling against its Black citizenry. It's not that I didn't have good experiences in the United States. Memories of my American childhood were once bright and vivid like a flower filled landscape painted in watercolor. Back in the 1990s when I was four, my mother moved to America from Trinidad and Tobago as a single parent with my two siblings and me. The first New Jersey neighborhood I called home was a bustling diverse town just outside of New York City. The area was mostly Hispanic, but it also had both black and white residents. My family blended right in. In school, I learned to pledge allegiance to the American flag. With liberty and justice for all, I proudly recited every morning. I was an honor roll student who felt adored and supported by my teachers. I roamed the town with friends, stopping at the pizza parlor for a dollar slice or the bodega for an empanada. But as I grew older, the brilliant American landscape painted in my childhood was ruined by anti-blackness. The quest for security, stability, and affordable housing left the biggest stains. Though my family loved that small New Jersey town, the steadily increasing cost of living forced us out. We rented an apartment on the outskirts of a wealthy neighborhood in Orlando, Florida. For two years, I took honors classes with mostly white students and played tennis and soccer on well-funded, mostly white sports teams. By then, at only 14 years old, I understood the coded words for America's school system. It was simple, bad schools were majority black, good schools were majority white. Eventually, I learned that rule applied to almost everything in America. My time in the good school was short. My family was once again priced out when our rental was turned into expensive condos. By the time I was in college, my mother, tired of moving, purchased one of the few homes she could afford in New Jersey. That was her way of supporting my dream to study in New York City. My memories of our new neighborhood are nightmarish in ways I now understand are the result of systemic racism. Police officers creeping through the night to raid the home next door. Poverty, streets filled with dilapidated businesses and boarded up foreclosed houses. The only colors that penetrate those dark memories are the blue and red lights of police vehicles parked on every street corner, swirling all night long. My mind had become monochromatic and plagued by a single question. Why was it so hard to have a good life as a Black person in America? I scanned history books for answers, only to find Black pain, death, and oppression. Slavery, Black codes, lynching, Jim Crow, school segregation, redlining, drug wars, mass incarceration, and gentrification. Assassinations, exile, unending persecution. Black successes met with a storm of violence like the surge of white supremacist hate after Reconstruction and even the election of Barack Obama. The unfair banking practices that prevented black home ownership in the suburbs and the gentrification that reclaimed black cities for white people. Images of lifeless black bodies, casualties of war, black men and women hanging from trees, Emmett Till's battered face, Martin Luther King lying in a pool of blood, his face half covered by a white cloth, Malcolm X's mouth agape, dead on a stretcher. America denies so many black people basic security, freedom, and human dignity. I had to run. The privilege of dual citizenship afforded me sanctuary in Trinidad and Tobago. I know how lucky I am. I know most black people in America do not have dual citizenship. As I settled here, my life slowly became colorful and vibrant again. I paraded through the streets for carnival in blue, teal, and purple beads and feathers. I was surrounded by faces of every color, descendants of enslaved people from Africa, indentured servants from India, and the Amerindians who were here when Europeans arrived. I strolled through black neighborhoods with my two children, with no concerns about whether we stood out as outsiders. I sat on my patio with my mother and sipped coffee, finally at peace. The United Nations defines refugees as people who flee their homes because of war, persecution, or violence. My mother and I may not meet the formal criteria, but as I observe a country engulfed in disease, flames, and justified rage, I tremble at the thought of ever returning. I admire the strength of Black people who remain in America and continue to endure. I hope and pray that one day, they too will find freedom.
1: So when I first read this story in the New York Times, I was so, so blown away by this idea of um, America being one thing and then someone else seeing America as something so opposite of what I
0: understood as like the general understanding of America. Everyone, you've seen everybody, like, gravitate here, lots of, especially living in Miami, so many um, Latin Americans trying to establish some sort of citizenship, live here, reside here, find safety here. And she escaped America. She left America because she didn't feel safe here.
1: And America is the place where so many people come for safety. Or we thought that. So she turned that idea upside down. And it's so sad on, um, on a level of like reality. It's so, so sad that people don't feel safe here. I mean, it is so dangerous for, for some black people to live in America that she needed to seek refuge elsewhere.
0: What she showed us is that there's so much frustration even living in your own neighborhood, you can't walk around. You get gunned down for wearing a hoodie. It's just like, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to exist. And she did a great, great job with all her details.
1: Um, she did another thing that I thought was super beautiful. There was like a, the way that she used color, I just heard it this time. Like there was like a black and white, she used those words. Bad school's black, good school's white. And then she said something like, the only color, there's this blue and red light swirling all night long in her neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And then when she got to Trinidad, she talked again about the vivid colors, the colors of, um, the co- how color, like I just see this colorful sort of parade. I think she talked about blues and greens. And at that point, she was back, and not feeling like, she had no concern that she and her children would stand out. She, she was feeling, she was in this colorful, beautiful environment. So she did this really cool thing with, with black, white, and then color.
0: Yeah, and I want to go back to the list that you mentioned. That It was so impactful for me to hear the list in order, like, bam, 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 bam. Tiffany did a really excellent
1: job bringing in historical evidence of racist bullshit, redlining, assassinations, images of lifeless black bodies, black men and women hanging from trees, Emmett Till's battered face, Martin Luther King lying in a pool of blood, jeez, Malcolm X, mouth agape, like just horrifying details, historical details of racism in our country.
0: No, it's disgusting, you know, and then I started thinking, like, what am I doing? How can I change it? Like, all the things that I want people who are listening to really respond to. Like, what is your role? You know, last night I had some friends over for dinner and racism came up and one of my friends who's... Very, she's just like I just don't believe in systemic racism, and I I just I was like oh, and I love this girl, and and I just want to be able to have this conversation. It, it, it people at the table got uncomfortable, and everyone was like, okay, it's time to go home, and it um the conversation got like a little bit opinionated, and it was clear that I had a different opinion than she did, and so but when everything dispersed, I felt like wait wait wait, we didn't get a chance to like talk. I don't want to leave it like that. And she sent me a text, you know, right after thanking me for dinner. And I said, listen, I'm sorry, it got political. And she said, no, that's a good thing. It's important for us to talk about our opinions and why. And that's the only way to, to understand each other, you know, and it's true. What's most important is the conversation. And I feel like Tiffany's essay creates that conversation. And then when she prints it, when the New York Times prints it, then people like us are talking about it. We're talking about it in our classes and we're trying to figure out ways to change things.
1: And I know this is an episode where I, a white woman, talk with Tiffany, a black woman, about race and racism. Tiffany was so generous for speaking to me. I know I need to do my own education. But what we're trying to say here with this episode of Writing Class Radio is that it's important for us to talk about race and racism. It's crucial for us, for white people, to talk about racism with each other. We need to talk about how we're implicated in white supremacy, how we benefit, how we don't even see it, how we don't even see racism, like your friend. And essays like Tiffany's can move us to have these conversations. Also, one thing I think is worth pointing out is that all issues aren't equal, So yes, ideally, we have to talk to people with different perspectives, but we're not just talking about different perspectives. When we're talking about racism, it's not just an idea. It's not just an issue. It's life and death. So I recently read this book called What Doesn't Kill You Makes You Blacker by Damon Young. And um, he wrote something that really made this totally clear for me. So Damon's a black man. He writes for The Root. So he was talking about two guys on his mostly white pickup basketball team and how he felt two days after the 2016 election. So one guy in on his team voted for Trump and this other guy voted for Hillary. And just days after the election, they came together to play another game. And these two guys saw each other and they did like this chess bump or they did something that signified like something that they would do after a basketball game, like good game, like well played. But Damon, he, like, he, he witnessed this whole thing. He's like, wait, no, this, isn't, this election is not just a basketball game well played. To him, it meant the election of a racist and the total disregard of his personhood. So yeah, we're here to bring people together. And I do believe that stories bring people together. But what do we do when some people hold opinions that literally kill people? I don't know my conversation with tiffany drayton after the break
0: we're back this is allison langer and you're listening to writing class radio i
1: feel so lucky that i got to talk to tiffany she's so cool and she's so generous and she just talked to me about well i asked her this so we studied her story in class And um, there were two African-American students in my class who were like, hey, wait a second. We don't have dual citizenship. They took issue with that in Tiffany's story. They liked her story, but they were like, wait. And so I asked Tiffany if she gets negative feedback and, or got that negative feedback. And personally, she said she did. And she answered it in a way that I also thought was a really good writing lesson,
2: which is to take responsibility for your privilege. This anger and resentment within the African-American population for immigrants in general. Firstly, it's fair. I would be angry too. Black immigrants tend to come in and hold higher positions of power and have more of an ability to climb the social ladder because they're not starting at the bottom where African-Americans have been historically kept um, in this caste-like position all the way at the bottom of the society, right? Where, um, where- for lots of reasons, they're not
1: starting at the bottom. They've like, been hugely educated in their home country.
2: In their own country, right. Even my own mother, for example. My own mother came from one of the best schools in the country and went to America. So now when she went to America, though she was in this very low status type of work, she was a nanny. She was also revered in this kind of way because, well, you're not African-American. Look how you speak. Look how educated you are. Look how smart you are. So you become this model minority. And that's that myth that I've been trying to tackle and trying to dismantle because that's exactly what I represent to a large extent. You are not like the others. You are dissimilar to the others and you are this 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 yardstick that we can use to measure other black people when they just magically don't measure up, you know, like, oh, yeah, they just happen to be, oh, uneducated. They could have just worked harder. Like, look at this girl. She comes from a single parent. And look how well she's done. Right. But you're not investigating that person's background. You're not investigating all of the things that they and the resources they did have access to. So you have to really pick your fights and you have to pick your allies and you have to know who your friends are. Or who you can make allies of. But it's a double-edged sword. Because while an African-American person can say, you know what? Let's make allies of black immigrants. Black immigrants will be the first people to distance themselves from African-Americans and say, yes, indeed, we're not like them. Look how educated we are. So that's the power of systemic racism. And for that reason, I always say the first point where... This conversation begins for me as a black immigrant and as a privileged person with dual citizenship is the point at which I acknowledge that privilege, because without that, this conversation goes nowhere. I am not magic. I'm not some magical Negro that just happens to be smarter than all the African-Americans. Not at all. I write not for black immigrants. I write for black Americans because I represent black America. And that's something that I will always do. And in order to do so well, I have to acknowledge my privilege and I have to call out all forms of systemic racism, including the type of racism that I may have benefited from, which is this this myth of the model minority, right? I'm always going to implicate myself in that. I'm always going to say this is something that I participated actively in and this is something that needs to be dismantled completely.
1: Then I asked Tiffany how her story to book deal went down. In this part, Tiffany mentions Susan Shapiro as one of her mentors. And we love Susan Shapiro. So I just want to tell our listener that um, Susan Shapiro is one of those people who helps young writers and new writers. And she's totally awesome. And she was featured on our podcast in episode 77. The episode's called Literary Citizen. So you can hear her writing and hear her story and Try to take a class with her if you're smart. Will you tell me about the process of, maybe tell me about the process of submitting the story to the Times and then how that editing process went and then the feedback you got before we get into your book deal.
2: Okay, well, um, I posted in a group called Binders Full of Women Writers, um, I posted a pitch to kind of let editors know I was looking for a home for a piece about leaving America. Nobody wanted it. So that's why I kind of went into that Facebook group and I was like, you know what? This is a resource. Let me try to use this resource because I've never pitched in there before. I knew the power of that piece in this moment. So that's why I was like, wait a minute, why does nobody want this? Why does nobody want this? You know, I went to Marie Claire. I went to Playboy. I went to all these spaces that I was really um, comfortable with pitching because I had already been published there and nobody wanted it. Um, and so I back to the binders. I, I posted in the binders. I was like, look, listen, I have the story, blah, 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 blah. And in the binders, the comment section just starts exploding. And all of a sudden, foreign policy is like, oh, we want it. And, and, and then I saw this editor from The um, New York Times, um, Janae Desmond Harris. And Janae was like, oh, send me an email. I was like, send you an email, meaning what? <laughs> you know, I couldn't quite believe it. I was like, meaning you want to read it? I hadn't written it at the time. I hadn't written it. So I shoot her over an email. She's like, oh, send me the copy. Let me take a look at it, blah, blah, blah. blah. I can't make you any promises. And I was like, oh, because I hate writing for free. That's I, I despise it because I did a lot of it. And I'm like, I'm too grown. And too, I got two kids. So it was very hard for me to even, even for the New York Times, I'm like, ah, ah." but I sat down and I just dished something out, you know, in like a couple hours and I sent it her way. And she got back to me with just this list of questions and she was like, can you, can you just answer these questions in the piece? So I looked at the questions. I was like, yeah, these are really great questions. Um, the one thing about me is if you give me constructive criticism or if you give me any type of criticism, it, it doesn't even have to be constructive. Once you tell me what you want, I'm going to do it. And that's precisely what I did with them. When it when it came to Janae, she was like, look, listen, we want answers for this. We want answers for that. We want answers for this. I ran through that piece and I chopped it up and I put in all the answers she wanted and I sent it right back. And I've always had the privilege of working with just these phenomenal women, phenomenal editors who have always made my work better. So I would say that that's part of the reason why I've been so open always to any bit of criticism because I'm like, wait a minute, how did I get here? Oh, because fantastic women made my shit better. Um, I'm just such a fortunate, fortunate human that so many people have invested in me in that way.
1: Okay, do you have any insight into why at first no one wanted your story?
2: If If you want me to be quite honest, how I've come to understand it is just the universe puts it where it needs to be, because had it been had it gone to anyone else, other people were probably buried in coronavirus coverage. Other people were buried in 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 Donald Trump coverage. You know, nobody was really looking for that story at that moment. I, I'm not I'm not sure I can tell you why exactly, but the only thing is. That story found its home. It got probably like 200 or so comments with people saying, I would love to read that. I want to read that. This is where you should place that. And then different editors saying, send it over to me. I want to read it. Um, Was anyone mean to
1: you in, on social media? Were people like, fuck you, I would Tiffany"? I say this right. is the
2: first time in my nearly decade-long writing career That there was absolutely no negative response. There are negative feelings, of course. And if you dig into the depths of people's feelings, there's always going to be um, a mix of feelings. But overall, the purpose of the piece overrides all of those feelings. And I think giving people the space to explore their mixed feelings, of course, they're going to tell you some of their negative feelings, which are fair. But Overall, people understood the the importance and the intention behind the piece and also the impact of it because you can always have good intentions but have shit impact. But the impact was to bring awareness to this thing that is systemic racism in its entirety, including how I am implicated. Okay, so then you
1: get the story published, not a ton of negative feedback publicly, and then you get the most positive feedback ever, which is tell us how it happened. How did you get a book deal? Who who approached you? I can't wait to read your book, but how did it go down?
2: Well, as soon as I published the piece, I started getting some interest from um, editors that work in publishing houses. I, um, I can't remember off the top of my head because, oh good God, it's been a whirlwind. But I started immediately getting some interest from, from different publishing houses. And so who do I go to? I go to Susan Shapiro because she's my go-to for everything. Um, cause I always, you know, bow down bitches. You have to know who runs the show. And she is, is like, I just have the utmost respect for her and she's always guided me so well. So I sent her an email right away. I was like, look, listen, Matter of fact, before I even... Once I told her that the piece was going to be in the the New York Times, she was like, Tiffany, what you're going to do is at the bottom of that piece, you put you're writing a book. I was like, but I'm not. She's like, yes, you are. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. And so she was the one who even told me in the author bio to put, I am writing a book about X, Y, and Z. And that was some of the most incredible advice. Because as soon as people read that in in the author bio, that's when really um, editors started... Like, oh, hey, I saw you're writing a book. What are you writing a book about? Would you like... Would you like to get your book published? Do you have an agent? So um, Susan Shapiro helped me to kick off that conversation um, preemptively. And as soon as people started reaching out with interest, she was like, okay, look, listen, I have the perfect agent for you. She introduced me to um, my now agent, Susan Golom. And that process of creating that the book proposal, um, going through that process with my now agent, who's also named Susan, but Susan Golom, Um It was exactly everything I could have ever dreamed of because, you know, I'm known for cranking shit out. I just kind of crank it out. I put it on the page. I don't, I don't really, I don't try too hard to think exactly what it should be because I just allow it to be what it is, you know? And Susan really worked with me in that process. Um, She just let me be me like, like I just threw up a bunch of stuff on a page and sent it to her. And she was like, okay, well, this is great. Do this, do this, do this, do this. And just like how, um, Janae kind of offered me the same type of feedback. And I just ran through it. I, I did everything they, she told me to do. I shot it back to her and we, we got it out to publishers in about, uh, about 10 days. So uh, And then who picked it up? I picked Penguin Random House. At that point, it was just whoever offers me the most money. <laughs> That was easy. Okay, sold.
1: Um, but let me ask you this. Um, what would, so right now, so you have, now you're tasked with writing a book. Can you tell me what it's about? Just like, what's your book about? Like, that's such a hard question. So I don't, I don't ask that lightly. But also, I want to know about how hard it is to finally get your dream and then have to, um, you know, come up with the, the pages now.
2: You know, the book is pretty much just chronicling, like I said, my family's experience with America, which is an experience with systemic racism. And as we travail these experiences, we have no idea what's really happening to us. It's just happening to us. And we are forced to flee time after time after time again. It's like you set up shop in in one state, all of a sudden there's policies that force you out. And you have no idea that it's happening on a large scale, but you know it's happening to you. Ultimately, the 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 real high point of the story is when I'm forced to reckon with the fact that all of these... Experiences we've had that have been so traumatic and so scary are actually the result of an entire system that's national, that's global, that that hates me just because I'm black, just because of my skin color, and it's like you've been getting these little pieces fed to you like little breadcrumbs over the course of time, but now you're forced to eat the whole plate, and the plate is full of so much anger and so much sadness and so much hurt. And what would anybody do but try to escape that as much as possible? Now, that's one layer of the story. The second layer of the story is, of course, in adulthood, I end up in this abusive relationship with my ex. And I go through this process with my ex of this abusive relationship and this cycle of abuse. And then one day, because I end up in therapy, I'm like, hold the fuck up. This is my relationship with America. America. Right. I
1: was going to jump jump to that. That is your relationship is a metaphor for America.
2: Fucking hell. I'm sorry you had to live that twice. Right. But it's it's like you're sorry, but you're not sorry. Because once once you can see once it's like you're driving through this horrific storm and you have no windshield wipers. But once you at least have some windshield wipers, you can guide yourself accordingly and that's what it is to be black in a system, in an abusive system of racism. And that's what it is to be woman. I mean, a woman in a, in an abusive relationship. Once you can see it for what it is, now you can make educated decisions as best you can, and and utilize whatever bits of of of, of resources you have to position yourself as comfortably as you can. And so that's where the story the story ends with me making that decision. No, I'm not going to settle for American racist abuse. Firstly, I have no resources here. I can't afford to live in these neighborhoods. I'm not going to live in a suburb where white people are looking at me sideways and and calling my kids' names. I'm not going to live in the ghetto. I can't do that. I'm not going to be with this abusive ex. And that's where I find my freedom because um, it comes back to, okay, what do I have? When you have none of those things. What do you have? And I look back and I have my two beautiful kids and I have my mom and I have my sister. And we just we just come together to support each other. And we just find our 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 moment of peace.
1: Okay. wow. Okay. now, last question. How hard is it? Is there so much pressure? Like, how are you handling it? Or are you just going for it without worrying how's that working out the process
2: when you live a life of constant pressure it's actually quite normal I mean I don't really know a life that's easy or not full of pressure I don't really know that life so I can't I I don't feel anything anymore. Um, I mean, sometimes I get overwhelmed, but I get overwhelmed by external stressors like my kids or like my ex. Um, But in terms of this process of writing the book, for me, it's one of the easiest processes that I've ever had to really sit down with that though it is challenging, what, what makes me say easy is that I'm just telling my truth. So I don't need to do anything, but just write it.
1: Thank you. Is there anything else you want to say? Because I feel, I'm, I can't believe how lucky I feel right now that I, I got to talk to you about all this.
2: I, it was my pleasure. And I'm so happy that we got to have this conversation. And you, you can feel free anytime. Hit me up. And and really, I just want everybody to know, by the way, that I am a super open person. You can always hit me up for advice. You can always hit me up for a contact. Like, I read pieces every single day. I offer people um, I um, feedback all the time. These are things that I feel it's my duty to do that as a literary citizen, just as Susan Shapiro did it for me. I do it for whoever asks, if you want me to be honest. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Tiffany,
0: for sharing your story with us. This episode of Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Andrea Askwitz, and me, Allison Langer. Social media content is by Mia Pennycamp. Theme music by Ari Herstand. Additional music by Poddington Bear. There's more writing class on our website, writingclassradio.com, including video classes, stories to study, and editing resources. If you love this show and enjoy all the extras on our website, hit the support us button and check out the writing classes and publishing insights. We're giving our Patreon supporters $10 a month gets you an all access pass to Andrea who can answer all your publishing questions. $25 a month gets you a writing class a week with me. The classes are on Tuesdays from 12 to one Eastern time via zoom. We write to a prompt and share what we wrote. A new episode will drop every other Wednesday. So look for us. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? If you love this episode,
1: share it with a friend.
2: It's said that the more time you have to invest, the greater the return. Well, guess what? Kids have the most time if we learn to invest early. That's why I created the Cash Kid Podcast, where I teach kids and some adults financial skills they need to know on how to earn, save, and invest their money. Join me on this journey as we interview experts and explore topics that allow you to grow your money as kids. This podcast will help you become the money expert among your family and friends. Just remember, anyone can be a cash kid. You just have to learn how to become one.